You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. My message is titled, If You Want to Walk on, the wa- walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat, which comes from a book written by John Ortberg, but also gives a very good description of the journey I've been on the last year. I want to start out by reading a passage of Luke. One day as Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were as astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for men. So they pulled up their boats, left everything, and followed him. I just want to ask, can you imagine? You're Simon Peter. You just won the lottery. That was the biggest catch probably of your career. You just told Jesus, I am a sinful man. Get away from me. And what was his response? Follow me. That's every day for us. That's every day that we acknowledge we're sinners. And Jesus still says, follow me. So let's, let's hold on to that thought for a little bit, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the journey I've been on. I've got two uh, beautiful girls. As you can see, that's Emma. She turns five in July. Addie turned two last week, and that's my beautiful wife, Lindsay. She's in the back. You can ask for an autograph for putting up with me for almost 11 years. I have, a, I have an awesome family. I've got an amazing job. But what I was really missing was I wasn't having honest conversation. I wasn't sharing my emotions. I wasn't sharing anything other than swim practice was awesome. We want to meet with my wife. And that changed as the walls began to break down. You know, I was living in complacency. I was living in fear. And that changed. As many of you know, this is my last year working at Asbury. Pretty much from 2006, when I transferred here as a junior, this has been home, except for a brief time in 2010 to 2011, where I worked at a school in Ohio. It's where I slammed collegiately. It's where I met my wife, and it's truly where I found my faith. I have so many memories of all the teams I've coached, the people I've worked with, and the things we've accomplished together. But over the last year, Lindsay and I have been praying about the talking of uh, potentially moving to Florida to be closer to her family. And when I say we had conversations, I'm going to be honest, they were not conversations, they were fights that I didn't want to leave. And God changed my heart. But it was hard. I kept seeing swimmers of these guys and girls that I coach now, that I've coached in the past. I saw my, my, my boss, Mark, who's done so much for this university, our department, our team, my own professional career, and I didn't want to give it up. And so I read a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat. And John Orberg immediately asked, what is your boat? And I read through the words and saw the word vocation. It was the Holy Spirit that tugged my heart and said, your time is done. John says, sometimes in the providence of God, the end of a career is the beginning of a calling. 
and you have a calling. You are not a spare part. You are on a mission from God. Just remember, there is some assembly required. But yeah, working here has just been the greatest joy, one of the greatest joys of my life. Being a student here was life-changing. Sitting in chapel was life-changing. There have been so many people here at Asbury that have made an impact on my life. Greg Hasseloff and his wife, Jen, did our marriage counseling. Greg officiated our wedding. Will Schausterman's basketball coach was a groomsman in our wedding. Ben Andrews is one of my closest friends. Uh, even some professors still here I had in class. Dr. Strait, who has always been a, a, a student favorite, was one of my favorite professors. And I remember this day, he probably doesn't, but he would always ask these questions. And I didn't understand anything about the levels of hell and the Iliad. I, didn't, I can't think on his level. But one day he asked a question. For some reason, I rose my, raised my hand. And I gave an answer, and he just stared at me and said, brilliant, Alex, brilliant. And that was like, that was like the best day of my life. <laughs> Dr. Strait said I was brilliant. <laughs> I don't think he meant it, though, let's be honest. But what I've really learned is I need to step out in faith. I started listening to a podcast about a year ago called Order of Man. It's geared towards men, and guys, I highly, highly recommend it. He had a, an episode called Let's Find Out Mentality. And he, he asked... He was talking about to guys, straight to guys. I felt like he was talking to me saying, you're afraid to change jobs and move your family across the country. You think you're the only one? And as I gave in, I felt peace take over. I felt the Lord say, I've got this. Another book I read recently called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And guys, I can't recommend this one enough. He says that adventure is written into the hearts of a man. And it's not just about having fun. Adventure acquires something of us, puts us to the test. Though we fear the test, at the same time we yearn to be tested, to discover that we have what it takes. And he talks about the word that holds us back, fear. Fear disrupts faith and becomes the biggest obstacle of trusting and obeying God. I can tell you, once I let go of the fear, things began to change. Didn't mean it was easy, but I had peace. And so I want to ask you, how many of you are living in fear? I get it, but we're not alone. We're not alone, and we can't let the fear control us. But even more important, how, how many of you are afraid to say yes to Jesus, to follow him? Because it means you may have to change your life. You may have to give something up. You may have to change your circle of friends. I guarantee you, Andrew and Simon Peter were afraid after leaving a big boat of fish and saying, I'm going to follow this guy. But they said, let's find out. I want to take another look at, at Simon Peter. From Matthew 14, 25 through 31, it says, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come on the water. Come, Jesus responded. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? You know, the emphasis has been so much on, on Peter falling, right? It's always Peter got out of the boat, but he slipped, he fell, he lost sight, he got scared of the wind, and, and that's true. But I want to share a, a passage from, from the book that gives a different illustration. Did Peter fail? Well, I suppose in a way he did. His faith wasn't strong enough. His doubts were stronger. He saw the wind. He took his eyes off where they should have been. He sank. He failed. But here's what I think. I think there were 11 bigger failures sitting in the boat. They failed quietly. They failed privately. They fairly went unnoticed, unobserved, uncriticized. Only Peter knew the shame of public failure. But only Peter knew two other things as well. Only Peter knew the glory of walking on the water. 
He alone knew what it was to attempt to do what he was not capable of doing on his own than feeling the euphoria of being empowered by God to actually do it. Once you walk on water, you never forget it, not for the rest of your life. I think Peter carried that joyous moment with him to his grave, and only Peter knew the glory of being lifted up by Jesus in a moment of desperate need. Peter knew in a way that others could not that when he sank, Jesus would be wholly adequate to save him. He had shared a moment, a shared connection, a shared trust in Jesus that none of the others had. They couldn't because they didn't get out of the boat. The worst failure is not to sink in the waves. The worst failure is to never get out of the boat. Asbury always has been, and it will be a special place in my heart. If you go outside, you see the flagpole. It's actually where a long time ago I, I proposed to Lindsay. It was right before I was about to go to Ohio for, for my coaching job. She was about to be a senior, and I wanted it to be in a place where she would see on a daily basis. It wasn't extravagant. People always ask, how'd you propose? Flagpole at Asbury, no big deal. Yeah. We went to Malone's after, so, you know, we did, we did okay there. But I, but I still think of that moment, and I look at a relationship and how much that we've grown over the last 11 years, almost of marriage, but especially the last year. I'm going to miss this community. I'm going to miss... A team that I don't consider a team, but I consider family. You all have loved me. You've loved my family so well. I hope you all know that this is a special place. That one day will come when you do leave and remember the memories you made. Dan Hatfield in the first sermon at Southland said, of this year, said, I know that Jesus will either calm the storm I'm in or he will hold my hand as I go through it. So I want to leave you with this. What is your boat and are you willing to get out of it? One of my favorite podcast pastors is Stephen Furtick. In one of his series, he reads out of Acts chapter 11, and he talks about telling your story. He talks about how some people see their testimony as, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And then he talks about how some people talk about a similar story with a totally different perspective, about how you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. These are both very similar situations and circumstances and yet two different versions of the same story. I love that analogy because it allowed me to understand that my story is both priceless and significant. I have laughed, I have cried, I have misunderstood and completely questioned my God. And this is my story. When I was a toddler, my mom took me into a grocery store, probably like one or two years old. And uh, one of the stories that she tells me is she took me into a grocery store, into a Winn-Dixie, and while we were in there, she noticed that two men were following us. This was before cell phones, before all this stuff. I know y'all are like, dang, how old is she? I'm 29. Okay, don't be rude. So she's walking down every aisle, and she's picking up things and getting stuff, and what she notices is that these two men are not getting anything. They're just watching, watching us. And eventually, she watches him leave, and the other guy goes and stands over right in front of our checkout and is watching us check out. He's not buying anything, he's just making awkward eye contact with my mom and her two-year-old. My mom said that she stood in the line and she's very high strung and you know, she's very, I'm a woman and I'm gonna get this done and I'm, hey, I'm home for that, okay, yay. But I'm two, so I don't know what's happening. I'm just trying to get candy hidden in the cart while she's not paying attention. And so she said that audibly she heard someone say, get a bag boy to walk you out. And she looked around and there was nobody there. And she said, I'm fine. She said the next thing she heard was again, get a bag boy to walk you out. And she's now having a full conversation with herself. Don't lie, y'all have done that too. But she's like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. She said the next sentence that was uttered 
changed everything about that day. She said the next thing she heard was, if you ever want to see your little girl again, get a bag boy to walk you out. A little bit embarrassed and incredibly confused, she looked at the bag boy and said, I need you to walk me to my car. As she proceeded to walk out in the parking lot, the guy that had been standing there watching us check out followed her out, stood in front of the doors, and began to do jumping jacks. She said it looked like he was signaling something or someone. By the time she got to the car, she had told the bag boy what was happening, and he kind of looked around and he said, well, where's the other guy? The other guy had pulled his car right behind my mom's. And she looked at him, she made eye contact very boldly, put me in the car seat, got a pen and paper out, wrote his license plate down, again, before cell phones, we can't call the police, and stood there while he watched her write his license plate down. I have no idea what could have or should have happened that day. But what I do know is that the fir- that's the first time that God audibly interfered with my life, and I didn't even know him at all. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit to when I was 10 years old, When I was growing up, divorce was not a very common thing, especially in the Church of God, and I am uh, very Pentecostal. I'm being very calm for you today. You're very welcome. I have not, my husband, I promised him I would stand in front of the podium and not dance around and get in trouble or have a baby on the stage. (laughs) So I think that that would scar you all more than most of my story. (laughs) Um, Going through life, my grandfather was someone that I admired greatly. He was someone that I could always talk to, someone that I loved very deeply, and someone that showed me what faith was like. The man had like 16 Bibles, okay? So obviously that's, you know, the first clue that someone's a Christian. I'm kidding, by the way, that's not. (laughs) But he had a Bible that he took to church, a Bible that sat on the coffee table that collected dust, a Bible that sat open so that if someone came in, you know, I was reading this. No, you weren't. It's been the same page for 27 years. But I was, you know, 10 years old. He sang worship songs, he lifted his hands, he showed me what it looked like to be a Christian. But some of the things that he didn't intentionally show me, I watched as I grew older. I watched him abuse my grandmother in front of my eyes and I never knew until I got older. I never understood the divorce, I didn't understand any of that. But what I did understand when the divorce finally happened and all the pieces fell where they needed to be was that he had faked the majority of what I thought Christianity was. This was the first time that I ever questioned God. This was the first time that I ever questioned if what I did in church was real. Pentecostals are known for their charisma, for their excitement. I questioned that hard. I loved to sing as a kid. I stopped doing a lot of the things that I I thought at that time were how Christians worshiped because I wasn't sure that if what I was doing was the same thing he was doing, which was putting on a show. We're gonna fast forward to college now. I played soccer in college my sophomore year. I broke my ankle. I had to have a plate and four screws put in to reconstruct. I couldn't do a lot of things on my own. Some of you athletes and even people that are not athletes, you've broken some bones, you can relate. There are things that irritated me, okay? This was before the comfort of leggings was acceptable, by the way, I just wanna put that out there, because I could not put my pants on by myself. Not only that, I had to wear this hideous boot on my leg. I had no weight bearing, which meant I could sh- couldn't shower with two feet on the ground. I had to put one on the side of the tub. Thank God for tubs. But it was just one thing after another. Rehab was hard. I had to learn to walk again. had to learn to bend again. By the way, metal does not bend like bones. And every single thing that I thought was just detrimental to anything, I was like, okay, 
This is it, today's the day. So I finally decided to leave college. I'm a sophomore. Called my parents and said, hey, I'm coming home. I've packed it all. My mom, an incredibly calm individual, said, why don't you sit in your car and just talk to God about that? So I sat in the car, me being the complete person that I am in that moment of sarcasm, which I'm sure you've caught on as a love language, I started yelling at God and letting him know exactly how I felt about him breaking my leg on purpose. I treated God like a four-year-old that had thrown a stick at me on rollerblades. I'm punching stuff, I'm hitting my dash, I probably honked my horn a couple times, I'm not totally sure, it was a lot. But I know that one moment I punched up and I was in a little tiny Corolla, and I'm a relatively big person, so punching up was probably a bad decision. But I hit the visor above me, and when I did, a CD fell out, to which I replied, thank you, God, as sarcastically as possible, because it hit me in the head. I realized upon examination of this CD that it was blank, that it didn't have a logo, it didn't have any songs or anything on it. So I put it in the CD player, and I thought, you know what, we're gonna hear what you have to say. I expected it to be something special. What I didn't expect was the lyrics. What I didn't expect was the voice. In all of this craziness, in the one-sided conversation I had just sat and had, the lyrics said this, when you're up against a wall and your mountain seems so tall and you realize that life is not always fair, you can run away and hide or let the old man decide or you can change your circumstances with a prayer. The thing that shocked me the most was that the voice on the CD was mine. It was me singing as a nine-year-old. I have no idea how that CD got in my car. I did not know it was recorded. But what I do know is that 10 years earlier, God knew that I needed to hear those lyrics at this time in my life. And he saved them for me. And he knew that I needed to hear them from my own mouth or that I wouldn't believe them. Fast forwarding again, my junior year of college, I used to like to run. I used to run when I got angry. So I went to the soccer field one night, I was having a pretty abrupt night, I just didn't wanna be there. And I remember running laps around the field and just kind of being present. By the time that I was done, I laid in the middle of the field and I was sobbing at this point. And I'm sitting there, I guess I'm laying there. I'm laying there and I'm weeping and I'm like, this is stinking stupid. I don't wanna be here. I'm angry still, I'm still trying to deal with my leg. And I remember sitting there and I hear someone say, who do you play for? Y'all, I sat up so quick. It was like three in the morning, it was pitch black, nobody knew I was there and I did not bring a phone. And here I am sitting with somebody who not only is very creepy and in the dark, but likes to ask their prey questions before they do whatever they're gonna do. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking and I'm thinking, you know what, maybe this is a reasonable assailant. Maybe I'll just answer their question. Well, I play for this school, I go here. And without hesitation, a second thing, who do you play for? I said, well, my mom and dad, they love to watch me play. Right now, I'm trying to make a personal experience. I'm like, hey, I have parents. Don't do this, please. Again, who do you play for? And this time, I'm like, okay, I can't see anything in the darkness. You know how your eyes are adjusting at at this point in the dark. And I'm looking around, I'm like, I see no one. And so my response this time was, who are you? Nothing. It was in that moment I became an Olympic sprinter. Seriously though, I got out of there quick. But I get back to my dorm and I told my mom what happened and I said, you know, I'm I'm very confused. This is very frustrating. And she said, Elise, remember that God speaks audibly sometimes and you can't see him. 
And so I laid there in my bed and I thought, maybe I encountered the same God that Samuel did. I laid there wondering if my purpose was to answer that question. In 12 years, even now, I'm thinking, okay, I quote this to my team all the time. They can probably quote it to you. Every prayer that I pray, I say, let everything that we do and say reflect who you are in us and through us. And what you all don't know is that that's my constant answer to his question, who I play for. My son Porter was born in June of 2018, the year that I took this job, and nothing has gone right since for my son. He has had medical trial after medical trial after medical trial. And I've gotten to a point where, at this point, we just know God's gonna take care of him. But I remember in the room while giving birth, there was a lot of things that went wrong, and in the moment that I needed someone the most, my husband was pushed out of the room, a code button was hit and no one told me who was coding, so I didn't know if it was me or him. And I remember the only thing that I could get out of my mouth was, God, please. And it was in that moment, in that phrase, that my son was born, not breathing initially, but eventually. And now he is thriving and gets on my nerves every three minutes, and I'm about to have another one. But I didn't audibly get anything out. All I could get out was, God, please, and he still answered. What I'm trying to talk to you about is I didn't tell a lot of parts of my story on purpose. I don't tell certain parts of my story because it's mine. And the author of my story, which is God, allows me to do the illustrations as I go. And what I need you to understand is that God showed up in my life, number one, when I didn't know him. I'm two years old, I had no idea who he was. And then he stayed when I didn't believe in him anymore and when I questioned him. And then he asked me tough questions that made me fight for things that I believed in. And then lastly, he showed up when I couldn't even find the real words to ask him for help. It's crazy to me that through all of this, he's never left me. It's even crazier that he chose me to stand in front of you, knowing exactly who I am and what I've been through. You see, there are parts of my story that the devil absolutely meant for evil. But my version is a victory when Satan's was of death. Scripture says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You have control of how your story is told. Tell the part about how the giant fell instead of how big the giant was. It changes perspective, sometimes even for you. Our testimonies can be a very powerful tool. And my challenge to you throughout the rest of this semester and the rest of your life as you continue to grow in Christ is to tell your story, no matter how challenging it is. But at the end of it, remember who should get the glory for the entire thing.